0: Good morning, good to see you here this morning and let me add my happy Mother's Day to all the moms in the room and uh, for those who are not physically moms or have wanted to be moms but could not be moms, uh, women you have a role in momming others who are younger than you so don't think just purely in the physical realm but in the spiritual realm, Uh, far more uh, is neglected in the spiritual world of of being spiritual parents to others. So uh, moms, even if you are bereft of of children of your own physically, there's a great role for you to be spiritual moms. So do not undervalue that. Uh, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of First Samuel. Now uh, you'll note that we are not continuing this morning, In uh, Genesis, Uh, you can look at chapter 34 of Genesis and see why I chose to leave that alone for this week. Uh, Rape and revenge is the the subject there, so uh, it just seems more fitting to do something in Samuel. So um, we'll get to that next week. Still struggling with how to deal with that passage, so pray for me. Uh, But for this week, 1 Samuel... Um, and my heart, uh, just as I was praying and asking God to reveal it to me, I, I just saw um, uh, several passages on the internet. In fact, it was just this simple of, of many passages in the Bible that are, that are dealing with the, the subject of motherhood. And I thought it would be appropriate to land here this morning. First Samuel all of chapter one. It's a little lengthy, so I encourage you to follow along in your own Bible. And if indeed you are using the church Bible, you're gonna find that on page 225. Hear the word of the Lord. There was a certain man of Ramathiam, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other, Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penaniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting at the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed, avowed and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man, Elkanah, and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you wait until you've weaned him only may the lord establish his word so the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him and when she had weaned him she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull an ephah flour, and a skin of wine and she brought him to the house of the lord at shiloh and the child was young then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to eli and she said "O oh my lord As you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. This is God's word. Would you bow with me as we pray in preparation? Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, and learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, here's some fun facts I read about Mother's Day, and I found this on the internet, so we know it's true. Um, And I'll I'll credit uh, author Leah Silverman of Town & Country magazine, so it's true, at least according to her. More phone calls are made on Mother's Day than any other day of the year. I did not know that. More phone calls will be made today. It is the third highest selling holiday for flowers and plants, which tells you what is the top priority for what you bring mom. (laughs) Uh, It is the busiest, or sorry, yeah, it is the busiest day of the year for restaurants. So if you're trying to get a place to bring mom for lunch, uh, if you get in uh, and you get a table, they're going to give you the bum's rush and make a chance for somebody else to come in right after you, so... We don't, do, we don't go out for dinner on uh, Mother's Day anymore. That's just us. Um, the history, history of Mother's Day start, started with uh, one Ann Jarvis, and it happened just before and after the Civil War. Anne Jarvis made this concerted effort to foster friendship and community between uh, the mothers, really, on both sides of that conflict. She started uh, a committee. This was in uh, 1868, which established really what was the first glimmer of Mother's Day uh, or Mother's Friendship Day, as I guess it was called. Her daughter is the one who actually kind of continued that tradition, and ultimately Woodrow Wilson uh, signed it into law in 1914. So here's another fun fact: 23 billion dollars was spent associated with Mother's Day in 19. I'm sorry, in 20, 2018. That's a lot of money: 23 billion. And the most popular item uh, that is spent. Uh, Uh, That is purchased on, on Mother's Day is a greeting card. You're welcome, Hallmark. They have definitely capitalized on that. And here's another just fun fact. Beauty salons and spas get a boost around Mother's Day. Interesting. Now, of course, the Bible makes no mention of a special celebration for mothers. I do think that taking a moment to to, and even with the rest of the culture around us that, that certainly does seek to celebrate moms. Taking a moment to honor moms and, and think about what a mother does, put the spotlight on that. I think it's, a, it's something that is very much foundational to God's design for humanity, really established at creation. However, if we take our cues from the world regarding Mother's Day, we could get a very distorted picture of motherhood I'll credit Christy Ramirez, also found on the internet, for, for these titles. Or, and this will give you some indication of how motherhood is perceived or at least promoted maybe in some respects or maybe disdained. So, And I'll, and I'll give you these titles without any uh, further comment or explanation. Helicopter mom. Granola mom. Wine mom, as in she drinks wine at breakfast. Workout mom. Career mom, phone mom, right? Whiny mom, and perhaps you've seen this one. Free range mom. And I I think what she means is that mom isn't so much free range, but the kids are, so. Now, we don't, of course, take our cues from the world as it regards motherhood. We take our cues and our understanding from the Bible. And that's why I read our Bible text this morning from, from 1 Samuel. Now, of course, 1 Samuel isn't primarily about Hannah being a mom, but it does give us a glimpse into what I would call the heart of godly mother. And so, uh, as we think about this passage of Scripture before us this morning, I want to think about the heart of a godly mom. The heart of a godly mom is marked by righteous desire. A righteous desire. Second, the heart of a godly mom is marked by endurance. And third, the heart of a godly mom is marked by faith. Now, I see all of these on display with with Hannah in her Bible passage. Now, while Hannah's life, I would suggest, certainly exemplifies godly motherhood, these three aspects of her life don't just regard motherhood. Really, they are in fact the experience of all who seek to live a godly life. Righteous desire, endurance, and faith. So let's take a look at, uh, at this from our, from our Bible text this morning. First of all, let's deal with righteous desire. I think you'd agree that our lives are consumed with the pursuit of things that we desire. If you just pause and think about everything that we do with our days, Somehow or another, it involves the pursuit of some desire, satisfying those things. When you work, you're doing it to meet your needs. When you prepare a meal, you're doing so to satisfy hunger. When you rest, you do so to renew your strength. Achieving some desires uh, are more than temporal, right? They sometimes involve a great deal of long-term planning like education, training, training. Saving money, again, I'm touching on things that we we do with our lives. Some desires are easily satisfied, but others seem out of reach or entirely beyond our control. But I would suggest to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, that the thing that sets apart the people of God is what undergirds desires what undergirds and informs desires. Now, Hannah proved her identity, I would suggest, as a child of God, as a godly mother-to-be through the expression of her righteous desire. Now, the setting here is is Shiloh. Uh, Shiloh was the place where the movable tabernacle that the Lord instructed through Moses that the Israelites would, would set up. That traveled around them with the wilderness and once they conquered the land, that tabernacle was positioned in a semi-permanent place in Shiloh. Shiloh is uh, north of, uh, it, it's in the territory of Ephraim, north of Bethel. If you're looking on a kind of a Bible map, map in your Bible, it might even be marked there. This was where they determined that the, the tabernacle of the Lord would stay. And I think by this time, because there's a doorpost involved, there's probably some permanent structure of some sort encompassing the, uh, the movable uh, tabernacle, which was effectively a tent. Anyway, Elkanah is, has been his habit. He goes to Shiloh uh, at least annually for, for a, some kind of feast, possibly Feast of Booths possibly just simply a voluntary sacrifice that he's making. We're not told why, but it's, it became an annual tradition. Um, and then we learn that, um, that this man, Elkanah, has two wives. Uh, Hannah was barren, and she desperately, desperately wanted a son. And she was a godly woman who wanted to be a mother. And this, why I, I would contend, is a righteous desire the desire to be a mother is a righteous desire now why do i say that now, i know the world has a different perspective on motherhood now i, I would say that mo- for the most part it's embraced and there are some very few and i would say radical radicals who maybe i'll put them in the camp of extreme environmentalists that have, have tried to argue that that the desire to have children might be immoral but most people, most societies of the world put a very high value on having children. And we know this because people are, are inclined to spend very dearly if infertility has been a problem, if there are physical circumstances that have interfered with, with the ability to conceive. I just read this, that, that the, the industry around uh, resolving infertility issues is 34 billion annually. So we can take from that that people put a very high value on motherhood. The desire for, for having children is certainly a righteous one. Even, even if people don't recognize that fact, it is the most basic human desire that a woman would have by God's design God's command at creation has not been rescinded. Let's be clear on that. He said, Genesis 128, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God has not taken that back. It is a righteous desire. No woman should ever feel that the desire for children is anything but a righteous one when it is sought to be fulfilled according to God's design within a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. Now, Hannah's righteous desire as we are introduced to her at the beginning of this is as yet unfulfilled. Verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And and it's important, I think, just to pause there and just get the sense of that deep anguish she feels. She wept bitterly that her desire for a son was righteous. It was informed by her knowledge of the Lord. And it shows as well in the outworking of this vow that she made, if the Lord would indeed choose to bless her with a son. And she prays. Verse 11, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, her childlessness, she calls an affliction. And remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor, razor shall touch his head. Now what that, this commitment, no razor shall touch his head, that might seem a little bit odd. And what that's referring to is, is a Nazarite vow She's effectively taking that for her son. She is committing him to a Nazarite vow. And you can find that in, uh, in Numbers chapter 6, 1 through 21. What that was was a specific separation unto the Lord. So she's saying, I want this son of mine to be separated unto the Lord. That he would abstain from wine and strong drink. That he would abstain indeed from grapes, whether that's fresh or, or dried. That he would not cut his hair. And that these outward symbols would be a marker to say, this one is set apart to the Lord. That, that um, separation would be, would, be, um, would be established through the, the uh, I guess, marked off at the beginning of it by a sacrifice of a lamb. Now, other Nazarites in the Bible, just for, for reference, Samson, remember his hair was long, no razor touched his head. And uh, John the Baptist in the New Testament also. Nazarite vow. Now, as we, as we look at this and, and, and seek to make some application here, mothers or mothers-to-be or, mo- or those desiring to, desiring to be moms, as you consider your desires to be both a mom and your desires for the children that God might give you, are they righteous desires? And it's worth asking the question, just some self-examination. And I'm not standing up here in judgment But I observe, and we can readily observe, attitudes in the world towards children. So let me ask the question. Is motherhood primarily about you? That your child is a canvas upon which you project an image to others of what you want people to see in you? I I think... I'm not morally opposed to taking selfies, but there's a lot of image presenting regarding motherhood, isn't there? Look at how wonderful mom I am. I do this with my kids. Look at, again, it might be some pride in there. I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying it's worthy to check your heart. Are your desires around motherhood righteous? And are your desires for your child righteous? You long for them to enjoy worldly success, but would you exchange, have you exchanged spiritual well-being for worldly success? Have you, have you made an exchange where in the pursuit for them and guiding them, you have set aside the knowledge of the Lord for the sake of their worldly success? The scriptures teach and perhaps you've taken this verse to heart in Proverbs. Train up in a, a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Now, we're not to take that as an absolute promise that your child will do exactly what they ought to do. Some of us have experienced the rebellion of our children, spiritual rebellion. But it's a general principle, the, the, what is incumbent on A mom on parents to train up your child in the things of the Lord and we quoted together um, a verse and I chose this on purpose do not lay up your for yourselves treasures on earth we we said that together earlier a lot of people look at their children as, as treasures and they indeed are treasures but is your treasuring in them a treasure on earth? Is your investment in them something that moth and rust will destroy? Or is your treasure in your children something that is eternal, worth examining? Are your desires righteous? And I've I've got to say this, as I observe moms here, so many of you moms, you embody this Hannah kind of character, investing spiritually in your children, your desire for them being way beyond. You don't have a small vision for your child to be the lawyer or the doctor or whatever thing the world might value. But you express your desire for them to know the Lord. That is an encouragement. Imitate that, young moms. Well, let's continue. Secondly, uh, my second heading here is endurance. 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 Uh, in uh, in competitive running, uh, people who compete in sprints, uh, they generally don't compete in marathons. So a sprint like a 100 meter that requires this sort of explosive burst of energy for something that is at least at the world record level, something under 10 seconds. But a marathon, th- that's a grueling 26 what 0.2 miles, and at the world record level, in something just over two hours. The energy required of it is is different. A marathon requires endurance. Now I, I get it. My ability to sprint is probably still slower than a marathoner. I get that, uh, but but you, know, I think you get the difference, right? Often it has been said that life is not it's not a sprint. It's not about a burst of energy. It's about it's about endurance, and certainly motherhood is about endurance. Now, Hannah, of course, wasn't in a race, but, but she needed endurance. And we can see this in the text. She needed to endure different kinds of hardship over a long period of time. And I think you'd agree. Isn't that required of motherhood? The text tells us about Elkanah. We touched on this already, but he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penaniah. Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. There's the fact. Now, Hannah here is mentioned first. She was likely Elkanah's first wife. Certainly, she was the favorite. But we can conjecture here that Elkanah took another wife precisely because Hannah produced no heirs. And to us, to our ears, that sounds very cruel and calculating. Not to mention that the lack of faith on Elkanah's part but in a time, in a time where, where the, the, the desire to have offspring, heirs in a household was so great, it, it is understandable, though by no means condoned by the scripture. The scripture simply states it. And if we want to find other examples, all we have to do is look back to Abraham as his lack of having an offspring, in spite of the fact that the Lord told him he would have a child, he seeks to gain one, even though it was Sarah's idea, to take Hagar, her maidservant, and produce offspring through, through her. Now, we see from the text that Elkanah loved his wife, and, and he, he wanted to console her somehow for her barrenness. Verse 5 tells us that he showed her favoritism uh, at, at the sacrifice, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion. So in whatever food was there, Hannah, you get double. Clearly he's making a statement to the rest of the family and it tells us because he loved her. Now that favoritism, I believe, created some problems for Hannah and it created this backlash from Penaniah. And so so Hannah, where we discover from the text, she had to endure ridicule, ridicule. Verse six, and her rival, Penaniah used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Look at those words. Her rival noun, provoke verb, irritate verb, all very similar and nuanced. And the the rival is the one who troubles, right? The rival is the one who, who is determined to make life difficult. That's Penaniah. And we're told how she does that, by provoking, by vexing and irritating. To irritate is, is to cause to tremble like, like thunder, make one shake. So what we're to take from this, is not just, it's not just prodding or, 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 or jesting. It's the kind of provocation and, 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 and irritation that, that brings Hannah to tears and profound grief for her loss. It went on year by year. And we're not told how many years, but year by year. Get the sense that this was under a long, long, long long-standing kind of tradition. They went up to bring the sacrifice. And Hannah would experience that ridicule, causing her to weep. Well, Hannah also had to endure misunderstanding. In In the moment of her deepest grief, the very one, in that setting, in that scene who represented the voice of God profoundly mischaracterized her. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. It's not something he just thought. He confronts her. How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. So Hannah here is pouring out her her heart to the Lord and she's likely unaware that she's being watched and for some reason, Eli assumes that, that Hannah has come to that worship place intoxicated. What a profound offense. In her deepest moment of communing with the Lord and pouring out her heart, she's accused of being drunk. Now, all of us have experienced misunderstanding but experiencing that misunderstanding and mischaracterization mischaracterization in the time of the most profound spiritual moment when your desire is is nothing but completely righteous and you're communing with the Lord, that seems like a profound offense. I think it's true just about motherhood in general that the task of motherhood, especially godly mothers, is one where you will be be misunderstood by the world. Misunderstood by the world for teaching your children a certain way or setting certain boundaries for things that they can and cannot do. Being accused of being overly controlling. Not giving your children freedom. But there's a misunderstanding that can come from your children as well as you set their boundaries, as you provide the guidance and they kick against your authority, a mother is going to be misunderstood. I think that's just a fact. Well, so there's ridicule, there's misunderstanding, but she had to endure a God-given trial. Verse six tells us, the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord had closed through him. The text makes no apology for the fact that Hannah had simply not conceived because the Lord prevented it. Prevented it. Now, I think this, this would be, and if you've struggled with infertility, this would be very hard to hear. I acknowledge that. Here's what we've got to understand and submit to the fact that God, he rules over all things. And his purposes, while perfectly good, because he is good. Those purposes are often hidden from us. So whether it relates to inability to conceive or some other circumstance in life that that you just don't have the answer for, God has ruled over the circumstance that has you where you are. Now when Jesus' disciples asked him about why a man was born blind, a circumstance, because they wanted to know who sinned, Was it his parents or someone else? Did this man sin somehow before he was born? Now, Jesus, before Jesus chose to heal the man, he he gave the simple answer. It was not born blind because of any particular sin. His answer, that the works of God might be displayed in him. John chapter 9, verse 3. And as I thought about it, I think, why did the Lord close Hannah's womb? we could certainly say that the works of God might be displayed in her. Now, because Hannah is eventually given a son, you know, after the Lord hears her prayer and Eli confirms to her that God will answer, the text tells us she knew her husband and she conceived. Hannah is eventually given a son, but we can see her initial barrenness in part was Instrumental in her dedicating him to the Lord's service. And looking ahead through the rest of the book of Samuel, we see that Samuel was used mightily by the Lord in years to come. Now, I know moms, if asked, very few would trade being a mom for anything. But it requires endurance, doesn't it? The mom experience is a life of tears. And that begins to be sure with tears of joy when you first lay eyes on that little one that you just gave birth to or, or when you were able to adopt and, and bring him or her home. The glorious moment of connecting with, with your child. But there will be tears of anguish when they're ill, right? You're awake in the night and they've got the fever. And some of you experience those tears of anguish when you have outlived your child, the most profound sorrow. There's tears of disappointment when they sin. It requires endurance. So moms, as you reflect on the difficulty of life as a mom, And some of you are in a very joyful place where where things just seem easy. Others of you are struggling. And it's the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. Hear what the word of God says. Because understand that the trial that, that you're going through has been ordained by the Lord. He's given it to you. He's permitted it. So, count it all joy. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Further down in that chapter in James 1, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. See the purpose in the trial, even in the most difficult times of parenting. Endure and count it joy because yours is the crown of life as you remain steadfast under trial. Here's a similar exhortation from Romans. Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the holy spirit who has been given to us being a mom it's joyful but it also includes suffering and that requires endurance and a hallmark of the godly mom is that indeed you endure well, finally, uh, faith. Faith is the last thing I want to look at. Hallmark of a godly mother is faith. Now, if you believe something to be true, that's going to inform your behavior. That's, that's just basic, right? If you believe something to be true, it's going to inform your behavior. At any given moment, you only do what you believe to be true in that moment. And that includes in your sin. Because in that moment, when you believe the lie, you've just, you've just simply made a trade. This will feel better. So we have to understand that faith is not some kind of power source, source unto itself. It's simply trust that something is true. You can have faith in the wrong things. So faith is only as good as its object and Hannah had faith in the Lord. Hannah would be a godly mother. She showed her active faith faith First of all, in the word of God. Well, you see this in the text. First, Hannah sought the Lord in prayer. She's crying out. She explains to Eli, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, so don't think that about me. I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. She had expressed her faith in the Lord. And then what did she do? She trusted the word of the Lord given through Eli. Verse 17, Eli answered, go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition that you have made him. Now understand that we don't get the word of the Lord today through some priest or, you know, if you come to me, I'm not going to say thus says the Lord if it's not in the book. I don't get anything fresh, okay? And I'm no priest, all right? We know how this works. You're not coming to me for that. So we, we don't have priests today. But in those times, the word of the Lord came through the prophet of the Lord, the seer. And in this case, Eli's place as the the priest, he had authority. He was given the word. And when, when Hannah made her plea to the Lord, Eli could with confidence say, this is going to be done for you as if it came from the Lord. And what did she do? She was comforted by the word of the Lord. And she said to him, let your servant find favor in your eyes then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad let me ask you a godly mother is one who lives actively lives out her faith so do you turn to the lord mother in your anguish when your child's rebelling when you don't know what to do when you're at your wits end to you do you turn to the lord in your anguish and having turned to the Lord, do you find comfort in the word of God? And we have it before us. Do you find comfort there for what you need before the Lord? Hannah had faith and it proved that she heard the word. She sought the Lord. She heard the word and took comfort in the word, but, but her faith also proved itself in the fact that she entrusted her son to the Lord and we see this in the text when Samuel was weaned Hannah brought him to Shiloh again to the house of the Lord and she left him in the care of Eli to serve the Lord now this is what she vowed of course verse 27 for this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him therefore I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives he is lent to the Lord now to lend something, it seems like, well, I'll give it to you for a while and I'll take it back. But but she is saying, look, you've got him for as long as he lives. So let me ask you, moms, let me ask you, parents, have you entrusted your children to the Lord? Have you entrusted them to the Lord? Now, what does that look like? Don't drop your toddler off when they're three years old here. We're not gonna do anything with your toddler, okay? That's not gonna happen. That's not what we're talking about. But, but in trusting your child to the Lord, it's deciding in advance that God loves your son or daughter more than you do. You can't possibly love as much as God's, God loves. And that God's will in your child's life must be paramount over your own desires. And whatever dreams and desires you have for them, they have to be secondary to God's will. They have to be. You're entrusting your child to the Lord. You're praying, God, whatever you want for her, whatever you want for him, that's what I want. Listen, I understand the challenges. We look at our little ones and we think, oh, I hope this or that thing. And oftentimes we're tempted with all of the things the world presents to us, success and prosperity. And we would never pray poverty in our children, but if their poverty brings them to the place where they're completely surrendered to the will of the Lord, is that not a better place for them? And yet, as parents, especially in a prosperous society, we feel so compelled to want something more, more, as if what the world offers is more, and we can so often have such paltry, tiny little longings for our children that are merely success in this world. No, oh, entrust your children to the Lord. So be clear with them from a young age about the gospel, that be clear with them that, that more than anything else in the world, your little one needs a savior. And I think back to my own parenting, all the mistakes I made, all the ways in which I emphasized the law of God over the gospel. So I'm telling you, if your kids are young, emphasize the gospel. They need to see their own sinfulness and not primarily your judgment against it. They need to see their own sinfulness and their desperate need for a savior in Jesus. So let them see your faith in action. Let them see your own dependence upon the Lord. Let them see your own need and recognition that you need a savior. And when you sin against them, own up. Acknowledge that your own standing before God is not on your own merit, but on the merit of Jesus alone. Orient your life around worshiping and serving the Lord and bring them into that. Don't orient your life around doing what, the culture says is primarily important. They will need to know that Jesus is more important to you than them. Well, Hannah wanted to be a mother and the Lord granted her request. Her desire for a son, however, was part of a larger plan. And as we look forward in the book of Samuel, we see that Samuel was used mightily by the Lord for the nation of Israel. He was, as the last judge of Israel, the one who transitioned from the point of the judges to the monarchy, ultimately being the one through whom the Lord would say, find my servant, the one I choose to anoint. Through Samuel, David was identified as God's anointed But David was a lesser Messiah, a lesser anointed one. And he ultimately pointed forward to a greater Messiah, a greater anointed one in Jesus himself, the Christ. Now, Hannah didn't know anything about that. She was simply a godly woman who who had a righteous desire. A desire for a child, because that's what moms want. And that goes back to creation. And then a desire with that child that he'd be given to the Lord She was a godly mom who had to endure hardship, ridicule, misunderstanding, and most of the sovereign purposes of God to deny her for a time the child she so desperately wanted. But she endured because she was a woman of faith. Faith in God that God would do according to his word and faith for whatever was before her. I hope, brothers and sisters, that you see that this is not a message just for moms, but it's really for all of us. It's for all of us. Because you know Christ, because you have trusted him, because you have seen your desperate need for a savior and you've looked to Christ, the son of God, you've seen his crucifixion at the cross, you've seen his death as in your place, you've seen the brutality of his suffering, not primarily for the physical wound, and his physical death. But you've seen the suffering he took to be branded with the ugliness of your sin and mine and the sins of all who would put their trust in him. And he bore that before the father. And taking that sin in his body to the grave, he rose again, leaving there the power of that sin to kill us, leaving there the power of that sin to control us. And if you've trusted in him, that's your hope. So let that, let that reality, the gospel of Christ inform your desires. And if it does, your desires will be righteous. Let that focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let that strengthen you to endure whatever the Lord should provide for you in this life. Permit. Whatever trial, whatever difficulty, misrepresentation, mischaracterization, ridicule, and even the circumstances of life that God has simply said, this is what you're going to be facing. And have faith because of what Christ has accomplished. Have faith that God will do what he does and it will be good. So, message for moms, message for all of us. Righteous desire, informed by our faith in Christ, a righteous desire, strength to endure, and faith for whatever God should have before us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for blessing us with the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus that you have opened to us in your word. Thank you that, that we have the picture, the full picture that the Old Testament saints did not have And we can see, Father, what you have accomplished in in unfolding history the way that you have. And for Hannah's small part in the history of this, we thank you for her. We thank you for the example that she gives to us. An example not because she was righteous in her own strength, but, Lord, because she simply trusted you. So, God, may we be those kinds of people. Desires for our children and our families that are righteous submitted to you, Lord, that you would grant us strength to endure whatever we should face, And God, that we would trust you in every single moment as we wait for our Lord and Savior Jesus to return in triumph. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.